We've been talking about names, names about people that God's put on our heart, God puts in our lives that we're praying for, praying about. We uh, have been asking you this simple question, who's your one? Not who's your 10, who's your one? Who is it? Now, maybe you have 10, but maybe you're going to think of 10 and you're going to pray for 10 every day. But I, I, we've been challenging you and praying about it. Who is the one person that over the next year that, that, that God may put in your life the opportunity to share and show Jesus with in such a way and just everyday conversations with these everyday people that they might just have the opportunity to come to faith in Christ? Great thing is, we've been doing this for three weeks. We have a board's walls out in the gallery area. You've been putting your names on there diligently week after week for just now three weeks. We've been praying about this for two months. Beauty is, starting off today, we had 334 names on the board that y'all are praying for. Now, that's cool. Now, that's me counting them in the morning, so plus or minus an error of about 15 or 20 on each side. But me counting them, there was 334. The great thing is, is just after last gathering, one the very first person that we had on the board to give their life to Christ was a lady named Kim and her she gave herself to Christ last service give the lord a round of applause our first celebration we're praying for all 334, and I noticed that there were several people putting new names up there. These names are important. We have a light out there, a board out there that says Live Sin. 508 light bulbs on there. We have been praying for well over a year now, 13 months to be exact. God awakened 508 people. We don't know how long it's going to take, but we're going to keep about this. We're going to pray that God will continue to awaken. The good thing is, over the past 13 months, listen to this, through our global engagements, through our local relationships, through our families, right down to into, into the homes, we've been able to see 75 people, 76 starting today, 76 people give their life to Christ through the ministry of Grace Point Church. Give another round of applause. We rejoice. That hand clap is an act of worship. Clap your hands, all ye people. Shout unto God with a voice of triumph. We are rejoicing and we want to continue to rejoice. Why do we talk about this? We've got numbers here, 334, 75, 76. You're talking about numbers, numbers, numbers. We count people because people count. Isn't it great that you actually count? You're a person, but we value you. We are on a mission to grow more. And better disciples, not better, not just more, more and better disciples. There's a mission about Grace Point. That's what we're about. And everyone is significant in that great big mission because everyone matters to God. Think about that. We have been emphasizing the one and every one matters. Now let's talk about this one. One is priceless, okay? There's a trifecta that I want you to see here. If you're taking notes on papers, you can draw this little trifecta out there if you want. One is priceless. If you go back to the very first message in this, in this series, we talked about the one and 99 and Jesus leaving the nine or the shepherd leaving the 90 and nine and going after the one. That one was priceless. He was enough value in that one that he would leave the 90 and 9. What an example of everyone being priceless. So if we would learn to look at the people in our life and see them as priceless, everyone that God puts in our circles of influence, we will have on average about 27 conversations a day. 
That's just a national average. 27. 27 of those could turn into gospel conversations. Think about it like that. And every one of those 27 are valuable in God's eyes. They're priceless. He would come for every one, every last one of those. But also, another in the little trifecta is one is significant. The significant idea is that I am significant in God's plan. You are significant in God's plan. God has a plan and it includes you reaching, caring, loving, showing, sharing Jesus with that one priceless individual. Significant enough that he can take one boy's lunch. We talked about this last week. One boy's lunch and feed 5,000 people. Take one lady from Sychar at a, at the well, Jacob's well, and he encounter this one lady, this one lady go back to her village, Sychar, and bring the entire village to faith in Christ, or at least bring him to expose him to Christ. We talked about the one demon-possessed man last week and how that one demon-possessed man wanted to stay with Jesus. Jesus said, no, go back to your family. And he goes back to his city and he tells them what he has done. Again, the significance of one person getting the mission of God at the forefront of their soul and their mind. So if you could understand your role in the significant work of God, then we would be making moves to that. Again, seeing God do a great work through Grace Point, through you, through our, through our church. Again, one trifecta is priceless. One is significant, but there's another one. We're going to talk about that today. Powerful. The powerful trifecta is that, that that person, every person's in our life, they're significant. Okay, they're, they're priceless. We are a significant part of God's plan for bringing them to faith in Christ. But we don't do this alone. We do this in the power of one. The one being Jesus Christ. The one is significant enough that we can do one. Now, John, I have to disagree with John Maxwell on this one because he, he will say this in his uh, 17 uh, indisputable laws of teamwork. One is too small of a number to achieve greatness. Well, if your name is Jesus Christ, then you're, you're, you're one, okay? And you are enough to create and do great things. In fact, one, with, with God on our side, we are, we are the majority. Okay, we can do more with God than we could do all the nations of the world coming together. Just one person giving themselves up. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. If God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us, all right? We are in the majority. Take your Bibles, find the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4. We'll be there today. And I want us to unpack the power of one, the powerful one. And let's unpack how he fits into our role in being a significant person in God's economy. We're going to see the power of one in a couple of individuals here today in the story, but in particular, we're going to see it in the life of Peter. We'll see it in Peter and John. What happens in chapter, we're going to be in chapter four, but let's go back, let's hit review real quickly. Chapter three, what happens in chapter three? Chapter three, Peter and John come prayer time. They're heading up to the temple. Okay. They're charting up the hill in Jerusalem. They're going up for prayer time. 
they are going to enter into the temple courts. The temple courts was a large area. Around the temple courts, there was Solomon's portico. There was the stoa. Basically, you think about a great big breezeway, high ceilings, big pillars. This was the way Herod's temple was built. Okay, it was built around, and in the center of it was the Holy of Holies. On the outside was this portico, if you will. And in that portico is where the money changers were. That's when Jesus cleaned out the money changers. This is where people would hang out. In, in Greece, if you go to Greece and you go to Athens, the, the Stoa was where the philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, uh, 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 Socrates, they would wax eloquently in the Stoa, in this, uh, again, open forum, open courtyard kind of thing. Well, interesting things will happen there because as Peter and John are walking up, they encounter this man who, listen, for 40 years, 40 years, has been carried every day to sit in the temple courts and to beg. Now, he was literally from birth, it says in chapter 3, from birth, he had been lame. For 40 years, he had never walked, danced, ran. He had never played cricket, softball, whatever they played back in the first century. He never played any of that. He was the kid who had to sit on the sidelines. He was the adult who had to be carried to the temple and beg for his living. It wasn't by choice. It wasn't by neglect. It was by birth. This is what he was born with. So Peter and John are walking up there. This guy is asking for alms. That's what he did for a living, okay? And Peter and John, they don't have anything, but what they do offer him, they give him, which is Jesus. And we notice that there's the powerful interaction, and this man all of a sudden stands up and walks incredible story. He starts not only walking and doesn't run out of the temple, but he starts dancing and jumping and leaping and rejoicing. Everybody in the temple recognizes it's that man for 40 years has been sitting at the gate. And so everyone sees a miracle uh, that has just taken place. Peter and John take advantage of the moment. They get everyone together or everyone's together already around this one individual dancing and leaping in the courtyards. And they start teaching about the resurrection of Christ. I love how Peter and John take an everyday conversation, well, not an everyday event, but they take this event and they turn it into an opportunity to talk about Jesus. All right? Turning this conversation. Now, hit pause. We have two men. We have one lame man. And then we have a whole host of Sadducees. And they're sad, you see. They are very disappointed because of what's going on in the temple courts. In fact, they couldn't, they couldn't control Jesus. So what did they do? They arrested Jesus and had him crucified. So what are they going to do to Peter and John? The same people that crucified Jesus are the same people that arrest Peter and John. Throw them in the lockup overnight. We pick it up in chapter 4. Follow along. And as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees who were in charge of the temple. By the way, Sadducees are different from Pharisees. Pharisees were, were anti-Rome. Sadducees were in bedfellows. They were bedfellows with Rome. Uh, Sadducees were given control of the temple. Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. Pharisees were over here. They were the high religious muckety-mucks. So you have these two high powerful people and the Sadducees are in control of this situation and they were greatly annoyed because they, Peter and John, were teaching the people and proclaiming to Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe in the resurrection. 
They didn't like Jesus the first time, and they definitely don't like Jesus the second reinvisited uh, by his disciples. And so they arrested them. We don't know what to do with them. We'll do with them what we did with Jesus. We put him in jail. And it was already evening, and many of those who had heard the word believed. They could arrest him, but they couldn't stop the powerful working of the Holy Spirit and the work of God that was happening. Because what happens? And the number of the men, now it specifically says men. That doesn't mean there weren't women. It just says they only counted the men. Who knows how many women and children came to about 5,000. Now, just to hit rewind again, we got to understand there is a movement of God happening here. It's a beautiful, powerful movement. In A.D. 30, when Jesus was crucified and, uh, and the movement of God was about 120 people, that was all that was in the upper room. That's all that they knew that was left of followers of Jesus. And that's it, 120 people. Acts chapter 2 comes along and there are 3,000 people in one day. Talk about exponential growth. It already happens. 3,000 people. Acts chapter 4. 5,000 men. Who knows how many women and children were in the mix. You see it's just exponentially growing here. In AD 66, there was an estimated that 40,000 throughout the Roman Empire were followers of Christ. You see what's happening? It is growing. It is growing faster and faster. By the end of the first century, the New Testament is all completed and written. There's estimated 100,000 followers of Christ in the Roman Empire. By A.D. 300, the number is given that it has grown up to 6 million. About 10% of the entire Roman Empire are now followers of this Jesus movement. And by A.D. 330, we know Constantine becomes a follower of Christ and Christianity finally becomes legal. What I want you to see in anything in all those numbers is that every single one of those people counted. And they were counting them because people count, because people matter, and they were valuing every single one of them. And that's the movement of God that was happening. The movement of God was spreading. And there was a a second century Greek philosopher, Kelsos. And in his own writings, the first person to ever write against Christianity was this Greek second century philosopher. He said it was the faith of the uneducated slaves, women, and children. And he said this, he said, by wool workers, he complained that the spread was, was happening from house to house by wool workers, by cobblers, by laundry workers, and most illiterate and the bucolic yokels. I don't think that's a compliment. I had to look up what a bucolic yokel was, but I really don't think that's a compliment. But I want you to see A second century philosopher is seeing a movement of God that 10% of Rome in 300 years becomes followers of Christ. And you know what? It doesn't happen because of professional preachers, because of televangelists, because of somebody had a great book released. It didn't happen, but because of wool workers and cobblers and laundry workers and the most illiterate and the bucolic yokels. That's how the movement of God was happening. It was common, everyday people 
who understood their common everyday task was more important than selling goods in the market, more important than putting product on the shelf in some store out there, first century Walmart. The most important thing that they were about was getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what I want us to see. And everyone was about that. Stephen Addison has studied extensively movements of God throughout the centuries. And he makes this statement in his book, The Movements That Changed the World. He said, missionary movements spread throughout the efforts of ordinary people. The rapid spread of the gospel requires efforts of non-professionals. That's the non-clergy. And he said it was the converts who immediately began sharing their faith and making disciples. That's where the movement of God came. So I want us, everyone in this room, to understand that you have a significant role in the work of God to reach the priceless individuals who don't yet know Christ. You don't do it in and of yourself. You do it in the power of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who's risen from the dead. That is the trifecta that we as followers of Christ live under. So let us understand the power of one. Let's measure it. How do you measure this Jesus power in our lives? Let's go back to Acts chapter 4 and we're going to break it down. I see that there are three measurements of Jesus's power in us. One is we have ultimate power. Ultimate. I want to emphasize the word ultimate. Now we like the word ultimate in our marketing schemes. There's ultimate vitamins out there, okay? You can go get some ultimate vitamins. If you want the ultimate book on scholarships for your kids, go on Amazon right now and you can order the ultimate scholarship book out there. There's an ultimate Three Stooges collection out there if you like the ultimate of Stooges. If you like Weird Al Yankovic, there's even the ultimate Weird Al Yankovic collection. There is ultimate, I looked up a cat simulator. If you like games and you're a gamer, then here's the next game that you need to get. Watching cats run from dogs, I guess. I don't know. It's the revenge of the cats. I don't know. So you play the game and tell me about it because it's supposed to be the ultimate out there. When I hear somebody say ultimate, to be honest with you, I kind of push back because I know what ultimate means and we made it to mean so much everything else. But ultimate means finality, supremacy, preeminence, and omnipotence. It is the ultimate. It is the greatest. There's nothing greater than this. So when I say today, you ought to push back, that in Jesus there is the ultimate power that we have when we go out. You ought to push back on that say, Mike, prove it to me. Okay, I'm glad you asked. Let's prove it to you now. I'll do for you exactly what we had to do with our kids. Our kids were growing up, and we ended up not even knowing that we were going to end up playing this game on what uh, what we were doing. But we'd say, put the kids to bed at night. We'd kiss them and say prayers with them and all that kind of stuff. But Caleb particularly was very hard. He was the hardest one to get to bed. And he would have this litany of things that he wanted done before bedtime. Anybody, any parent in here identify with that? Okay, so all the things that can get you out of bed. Well, finally he had to say his his list of things that we had to do. And basically, 
This was what he had to say every night, and he had to make sure he said it to all of us, and that was, good night, sweet dreams, don't forget to say your prayers, I love you, I love you more, I love you most, you can't copy me or go higher than me. Now that is like the ultimate in prayer. Until, until we, Buzz Lightyear came out, and the Toy Story came out, and our kids grew up in that era, and then we had to add in there to infinity and beyond, okay? So that is ultimate good nights. If you cannot beat a good night like that. So here I wanted to tell you who our ultimate powerful God is. He is the more powerful, the most powerful. You can't copy him. He loves you. He loves you more. He loves you most. You can't go higher than him to infinity and beyond. That is ultimate powerful God. Now, how can I prove that to you? Let's go down to verse 5. So after the imprisonment, They've spent the night in jail. Verse 5 says, On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. They got all the big wigs together. And notice the same names that put Jesus on trial. And Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas. And now who are these two other guys? John and Alexander. Scholars don't know who they are. We have no context for them. So the speculation is, is that they were the prosecuting attorneys of the Sadducees that were putting... John and Peter on trial in that situation before uh, Caiaphas and Ananias. And, and, and all who were the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, so put them in the midst of them, not, not put them up front, but put them in the midst. Now you got people staring at you, looking at you. There's about 70 Sadducees that are a part of making up the Sanhedrin of that day. Who knows who all was there, but they're now put on trial. Now remember, pause here. Remember Peter? Remember the teenage girl over a campfire, maybe roasting s'mores on the night of Jesus' betrayal? What did Jesus, what did Peter do three times in one night to a teenage girl? He denies. He denies. He denies Jesus. That he even knew Jesus. What is Peter going to do now? He's standing before the same court, the same judge, the same kangaroo court, if you will, that Jesus had to stand before. He has got to be shaking in his boots. What does Peter do? And he set them in the midst and he inquired of them, by what power or by what name did you do this? By what power, notice I said powerful, by what power did you heal this man? How did you do that? By whose name did you heal this man? The power of one, the power of a name, here it is. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if We are being examined today concerning the good deed done to the crippled man. By what means this man has been healed? Then let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel. By the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he doesn't back down. He names him. He names not only who he was, he names where he was from, in case you didn't wonder. He is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's whose name we came in. Who you crucified, by the way, and whom God raised from the dead. When I talk about ultimate power, ultimate power is expressed in the power of life and death. I know of no other power than that power, that it can trump that power, that has got 
to be the ultimate power of all ultimate powers. And the rulers and the people, and the rulers and the people, and if they were examined today, uh, a crippled man, okay, and whom, who you crucified, who, who rose from the dead, standing before you as well, this Jesus is the stone in which the builders rejected has become the chief corner stone. When you look at this, you see that Jesus is the ultimate power because Jesus is the power of life over death. He is the one who brings life in deathful situations. Jairus' daughter last week. We talked about also, uh, if you remember, uh, Lazarus dying four days in the grave. Jesus had power over that. There's nothing in your life today that Jesus doesn't have power over. As a follower of Christ, there's nothing in me that Jesus Christ cannot give me power to overcome. The ultimate power is in Jesus Christ, and we need to understand that. I was on a plane coming back from, from Amsterdam not too long ago. Uh, actually coming back from Greece, but laid over in, in Amsterdam for just a few hours. Got on the plane. Back in the cattle crawl of the uh, economy, uh, folks back there. Uh, I, it's beautiful. I had an empty seat between me and the dude next to the window. That is like heaven when you're in economy and for six hours on the plane. And so we're sitting there. We watched movies. We ate dinner, you know, dinner for two, please, uh, as we're sitting there. We didn't talk hardly until about the last hour. But you've been there for six hours. You've watched all the movies you can watch. You, you've, you've slept all you can sleep. He's got to go to the bathroom. So you end up striking up a conversation. So he asked me, he said, why are you in, why are you in Amsterdam? I said, oh, actually, what? And I was in Athens. Oh, why were you in Athens? Did you go out to one of the islands? I said, no, I didn't. Now, at that point, I could have easily gone into why exactly I was there. I was there to teach pastors, to help encourage them because they're doing work, and I wanted to keep them uh, encouraged in the faith. But I knew that would have shut him down. Because I know the Netherlands, there are many people who do not know God, do not know Christ, do not even go to church or have anything like that. So I had to, had to bait him. I had to lure him into the conversation. And so what I said is I said, well, I'm working with people who work with refugees. Well, he's all ears at this point because Netherlands, Germany, France has all been inundated with refugees and they're all about opening up their borders and helping people. You know, I aspire to those countries like that that will open up themselves and say, hey, you're hurting, you come and we will, we will, we will work with you. And so he's like, okay, what did you do? I said, oh man, what we do is it's real clear. We want to give hope to the hopeless. Hope to the hopeless. And I said, man, these people have lost all sense of dignity. We want to give dignity, hope back to their dignity. They've lost all sense of belief in mankind. We want to restore hope in mankind. I said, also, we want to restore hope in God. And at this point, again, he's just looking at me. I said, many of these have given up on God. They've given up on their faith. They were Islamic and they said, if I, if I, if this means to be Islam that I have to kill somebody, I don't want to be a part of it. There are many good Muslims out there. And we need to understand that. They're not all ISIS. And so, so what, 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 he said, how do you restore hope to a person who's given up on God? So that became our conversation of how to restore hope. Now I wish at 30,000 feet I could tell you that this man from the Netherlands prayed to receive Christ, but he didn't. But I can tell you what, you can take any conversation and turn it into a gospel conversation. 
if you're intentional about it and you believe in the pricelessness of that individual, the significance of yourself, and the power of Spirit of God abiding in you. If you believe in that, then you can make a difference in people's lives. So realize we have the ultimate power in us, even to restore hope to the hopeless. Number two, we see in this passage that we have an exclusive power. We have an exclusive power. We do lots of work around the world. We do lots of work right here in Northwest Arkansas. Don't get me wrong. We're about this 365 days a year. But we also send teams. We also send work. We're also involved in work in strategic locations like an orphanage in Zambia where we work with, among children that 47 is the average age life expectancy of an adult in Zambia. We want to provide a home, a shelter, a place for future leaders of, in Zambia to grow up. We send teams there nearly every year. We have work going on in Greece. Just told you about that among the refugees. We're trying to restore hope to people who are hopeless. But we also have work among the Him- in the Himalayan mountains. Now, I can't tell you the name of this country because it's a security issue, but I can tell you this. There are seven nations that surround the Himalayan mountains. And any of those nations would fall into the descriptions that I'm about to give you. That there are more gods than people, that there are more temples than homes, that there are more religious festivals than days of the year. This is a very religious, spiritual people. But most of them do not know the name of Jesus. Most of them do not know a way to Jesus. And if we really, really, really believe that Jesus is the exclusive way to God, then we need to own it. He is not a way to God. He is the way to God. And don't take my word for it. Take Jesus's word for it. And if you can't take Jesus's word for it, then call him a liar or call him a lunatic or you better call him Lord because that's exactly who he is. In John chapter 14, verse 6, it says it like this. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's an exclusiveness about His power, about His power and about His pathway, that He is the only way. Verse 12 is what we find when Peter is standing before Caiaphas and all these religious leaders who think they know the way. Well, what what Peter does is he pokes a hole in their story. He says in verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name. Notice one, notice name. Notice there's power in no other name given among men by which we must be saved. There is an exclusiveness about his power. And I want to challenge you today, just as Kim prayed in the first gathering, that if you have been wrestling and toying and, jo- and, 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 and massaging the thoughts of this, oh, maybe one of these days I'm going to follow Jesus. Listen, why not today? L- introduce yourself to, be introduced to the ultimate, the exclusive power that can change our lives forever. We're going to celebrate this in multiple ways. There's two ordinances in the church. One is the ordinance of baptism on August the 18th will be our next baptism. If you've ever given your life to Christ or maybe today you give your life to Christ, then I would challenge you on August the 18th that you would declare your faith through baptism. Okay? Number two is through the Lord's Supper. We're going to observe that. I'm going to ask our ushers to come at this time. We're going to begin passing elements. And these elements... 
let me say this to all who are listening. These elements are for believers. So if you're not yet a follower of Christ, don't feel like taking these elements, okay? Just let it pass. Nobody's going to think anything of it. You're, you, this is between you and God. But you take these elements and I just want you to hold them. As these elements are being passed out, you're going to be receiving a little piece of bread. And you're going to be receiving a small cup of grape juice. Let's talk about them for just a second while they're being passed. So listen carefully. When I think about verses in Scripture, when I think about Jesus going to the cross, when I think about what this meal represents and how it represents the death, burial, and resurrection, primarily the death of Christ on the cross, when I think about that, I have to come to a verse of Scripture in Matthew 26. It says this in Matthew 26, when Jesus was with his disciples, he went a little bit further beyond. He asked them to stay and pray. They all fell asleep. He goes on a little further and says, My Father, this is his prayer, My Father, if it is possible for this cup to pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cross was so painful, was so weighty in all of its Roman torture that it brought. The cross that Jesus was going to bear was incredible. The pain that he was going to endure was so incredible. But I want you to notice this. He didn't pray that the cross wouldn't be there. He prayed that the cup wouldn't be there. Now, I want you to zero in on that. We talk about history. You talk about the ancient history. You have to talk about the Roman history and how Rome invented the crucifixion. They perfected the crucifixion. They wanted a torturous, brutal, inhumane way to die. Okay? We're not going to talk about that. I want to talk about the cup. The cup was not a Roman form of death or life or whatever. It was a... Greek form. Prior to the Roman Empire becoming what the Roman Empire was, there was the Greek world, Alexander the Great, conquering the world. In the 400s and the 500 BCs is when it was the classical Greek era. Now hang with me on this. When, when, when Alexander the Great went in and he conquered a nation, he made sure that there were certain elements that were a part of the communities. He made sure there was a, there was a bima seat. They made sure there was a stoa. He made sure that there were, uh, there was certain temples. One temple that every community that was a legitimate Greek community had to have was the temple to the demigod of medicine, Asclepius. This temple Asclepius was the temple where medicine was dispensed. It was basically a hospital. Many people believe that Luke was trained in a temple of Asclepius. But it's interesting that they have found around, archaeology have found around these temples, little vials, little cups. This is literally a picture of some that they have discovered 500 B.C. is the age of these cups. If you'll hold that cup in your hand, I promise you it's about that size right there. Now let me talk about this cup because this cup was used as a measuring tool for giving and dispensing medicine 
in these temples. But they've also found these little cups near and around prisons. Now, imagine the contrast. In and around prisons. Why in the world would they find these cups in and around prisons? Is because the Greek form of death, the form of death that Socrates himself was inflicted, was taking one of these cups full of hemlock, and he literally took it and died. It was a, the Greek form of capital punishment. Jesus lived in a Greek world, in a Roman world. I have to believe, because the cup got a second name throughout history, it became known as the cup of death. So imagine that with me for just a moment. When Jesus was praying, Father, let this cup pass from me. I have to think it was the cup of death that he wanted to pass from him. As we drink this, this is a plastic cup of grape juice. This is a wafer that is unleavened. But I want us to take this today in remembrance of Jesus and all that he went through. And let us remember this cup as a cup of death that brings us life. Let us remember this by by reading a couple of verses together. Would you read with me out loud? 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us take the bread. Father God, we thank you for your body that was entered into time, entered into space from all eternity. You put on flesh and you dwelt among us. We take this bread in remembrance of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Read with me another passage. 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way, After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And they drank. talk about the power of the one. It's not our power. It's the power of Jesus. The ultimate power. The power that can change everything. The transformative power is the third power. When you think about this man named Peter and the life that he lived, he was a scaredy cat. He was, the, he was the guy that buckled his knees when a teenage girl in the night calls him out because he's a Jesus follower. And again, I have to think that this, was, this had to be scarier standing before Caiaphas, standing before uh, 
Ananias standing before the whole Sadducees, this had to be a much more fear-gripped moment than that teenage encounter. What's he going to do? What's he going to, is he going to buckle? Is he going to run again? Is he going to put his tail between his legs and, and, and hightail? Is he going to deny Christ again? No. We see he stands up. But how does he do it? We go back to verse 7. It says, And when he had sat down in the midst and he inquired, By what power? They ask him. By what power? By what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice what changed was not Peter, but what Peter was filled with. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the power within us. See, the Jesus within us is greater than the Jesus beside us. The Jesus who abides in us. And we spent all spring talking about the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So may we understand today that Jesus wants to do an incredible transforming work. Yes, He is the ultimate. He is the ultimate. He is the exclusive power of God. But He is also the transforming power of God in what He wants to do in us. In verse 13, it says, And now when they saw... Who they? They, the Sadducees, saw the boldness of Peter and of John. They perceived that these were uneducated common men. These are just simpletons. In fact, that word common is the word we get our English word idiot from. He literally calls them idiots. These are idiots. They're common people. These people can't do anything. But there's a boldness about Peter. There's a spirit-filledness about Peter. There's something going on. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Everyone in this room has more than enough reasons of why I can't show and share Jesus in everyday conversations with everyday people. We all have them. We may say, I'm uneducated, Mike. I'm not quite as trained as you are. You're better at that. I'm just a common person. The greatest missionary movements of God have happened on the shoulders and in the hearts of common, everyday people who understand that everyone is priceless. Everyone, they themselves are significant in God's economy. And every one of us who's a part of the family of God has the power of God, that one powerful God abiding in us, and we can change the world. So may we understand that. May we live in that. May we walk in that. May we walk out of here, run out of here leaping as that, as that blame man did. May you stand right now and worship with us as we worship that one powerful God.